together just so we can have, it feels like a great big lesson rather than several little individual ones. And the series, as is, is I'm calling it, is, is who is a God like you? I, I, I called it back home. I preached these back home um, as the attributes of God. And that seemed a little bit dull. But this whole series kind of formed organically as I preached the sermon, the one I'm going to uh, deliver to you here in this class period, about the decree of God. It was the second and two little lessons I was going to do. First, I talked about the solitariness of God, how there's nobody like him. And then I, it just kind of grew from that. And what I came to realize is, is that we're here today to worship God. And we have lots of good lessons, and rightfully so, on how to worship God and why we worship God. And we focus on these things, and, and, and that's great. That's right. But a lot of times, what I've come to realize, a lot of times we're a little bit shallow on who are we worshiping. And, and I think we take for granted that we, oh, we're worshiping God. Well, when we stop and take a little bit of time and start thinking about who is God, what can we know about him from Scripture, it, we find that there's, there's, there's just lots there that we can study and that we can learn and we can benefit from. And so this series kind of grew out of that need that all of humanity, the greatest need of humanity is to know God, to know who he is, to come into a relationship with him, to be saved by the precious blood of, of Jesus. But that begins with coming to know who he is. And, and even if you've been a Christian for as long as Danny over here, you know, nine or ten centuries, or however long Danny, however old Danny is, if you've, been, if you've been a Christian for many years, and I'll tease Danny about his age, I won't do it again, I promise, you still can learn a little bit more about who God is. And as you do that, your worship, your commitment, your zeal, all, everything, everything, your faith will increase. And so that's the motivation behind these, these series of lessons. And this first one doesn't really seem to fit until you start to hear the rest of them. And that is the decree of God is what we want to discuss in this first class. Now, I know this, because I'm up here, it feels like a sermon and it kind of is going to be presented like a sermon. But if you have a question, feel free to ask it. And that goes for all the other lessons. Even though you won't feel comfortable to raise your hand in the middle of a sermon, it might be distracting. If you have questions of me, if you would like for me to explain something more thoroughly or in more detail or, or just to clarify something I said, please, please don't hesitate. In fact, a couple of the members here did that with me over the past couple of weeks, and I appreciate that greatly. To be able to have a chance to clarify myself and even make apology if I misspeak. I do make mistakes. If you aren't sure about that, ask Chris. She will clarify very quickly that I make many mistakes. Uh, I'm just a regular person like you, and I, I do my best to rightly divide the word of truth and present in a way that's profitable uh, to everybody. And, and hopefully this lesson, these lessons will do that. <clears throat> I always wished I could do a poll, and I, I guess I could, but where I could take a, a, do a poll and I could go out and ask people, what do you think when you hear the phrase, thus saith the Lord? And I like the old King James type language on that one. Thus saith the Lord. What do you, what do you think? about when you hear thus saith the Lord. I would imagine that your average non-believer, as we might classify them, would hear something negative in that phrase, something restrictive, maybe even something condemning in that phrase, thus saith the Lord. And that perhaps for obvious and justifiable reasons. But what about your average believer, someone who goes to church on a regular basis, we might say. They might hear in that phrase, thus saith the Lord, something else God requires of me, something else I must do or get to do or something such as that. 
But what if I were to poll you all and ask you, what do you think about when you hear the phrase, thus saith the Lord? We have many, many times in Scripture recorded for us where the Lord decrees or decreed something. When, when the Lord spoke an authoritative order, um, having the force of law, that's kind of the definition of a decree. We have many recorded instances of this. And these are important moments worthy of our ear. And so this lesson will be referred back to several times in the following lessons. But I want to just talk about the decree of God. The decree of God is his purpose or determination with respect to future things. Now that's your definition for this lesson. The, the, his purpose or determination with respect to future things. New Testament scripture speaks of such in the singular, the decree of God, because there was only one act of his infinite mind about future things. His purpose, and here's, I, I, I promise you I won't give you too much Greek and or Hebrew. I, you all know I like Hebrew. I studied a lot. Um, prophesis is the Greek word. Um, that means that which he set forth with purpose of heart. It, it, it's a very similar concept to where the 12 loaves of showbread were set forth with purpose in the temple or the tabernacle. And we can read about uh, this, this, this concept of the purpose or decree of God in many different scriptures. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8, here's a passage that we can turn to very easily and see uh, this Greek word prophesis, which means his purpose, that singular purpose that he set forth with the purpose of heart. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are the called according to his purpose, the prophesis, something that he set forth with purpose of heart. Also in, in Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, we can read, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, notice again in the singular, the prophesis of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So again, there's lots of passages. Um, uh, Ephesians, here's one, we'll reference this one multiple times in our study. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. In him, in Christ, in Messiah, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We'll talk about that word counsel here later on. Again, if you wanted to turn another page to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11, according to the eternal purpose, you notice it's always the singular, the prothesis, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one more, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, just giving you a sampling, and these aren't the only ones, there's others, but these will serve as a good sample. Here where Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. These passages teach us something. They teach us that the Lord purposed in his heart. We are, we're familiar with that phrase, right, when it comes to giving purpose in our heart. He purposed in his heart before time began. He, 
He purposed to choose or to save those who by faith are loyal to him. Terms like the elect, the holy ones. He made a purpose of heart. He chose something before time began. And here's the question I want to present to you. Think about this now. How many times did he purpose this before he created all things? Did God purpose one time, ten times, a hundred times? He purposed one time. The purpose. Not the purposes, but the purpose. And we commonly speak as if there had been many decrees, right? There is the decree of God, and we speak of the decrees of God as if that's something he did because our minds are only capable of thinking uh, of successive revolutions, right? As thoughts or occasions arise. Uh, or, or in reference to, we, we speak in reference to the various decrees of God, things like creation was a decree of God, the, the making of the animals and humanity and the nations, which, which being many seem to us to require a distinct purpose for each one, <clears throat> but an infinite understanding, which God has, does not proceed by steps from one stage to another. Luke reminds us over in passages like uh, Luke, uh, excuse me, Acts 15, verse 18, he tells us that what the Lord purposed has been known for ages. This is important. And again, I don't think this is a salvific issue necessarily. I think this is a deep understanding that we realize that God purposed and there is a decree of God and it pertains to future events. And as we're going to see here in a bit, it's going to be, it will be fulfilled. It cannot be thwarted. The scriptures make mention of the decree of God in many passages. You see this whole big list on, on the screen behind me. I actually want to read through these. I think these are helpful to us because it's helpful for us to see the nature, the, the, how, how the decree of God works, what it is when we look at what, what the scripture speaks of it. In Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm, uh, in verse 7, now this is not the Greek word prothesis, this is the Hebrew word hok, if you wanted to know that word. He says, I will declare the decree. Now, what's interesting is Hebrews very careful about plural and singular. It's not chokim, which would be plural. It's the chok. He says, I will declare the decree, the decree of God. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. It's really important to understand the singular nature of this. God decreed. And Luke writes about the Lord's determinate counsel and his foreknowledge in Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn there. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 23, we read, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Not the determined purposes, as if somehow over time God had to make adjustments for the plan to work out and for what humanity did and what Satan did. The purpose of God, it was decreed, it was determined by the foreknowledge of God. He says, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, speaking of Jesus. Again, if you went back to the book of Ephesians, we saw chapter 1 and verse 11. But if you look in chapter 1 and verse 9, here as Paul is going through this important first 14 verses or so, he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. So, so Luke writes about the Lord's determinate counsel and that foreknowledge. And Paul here speaks of the mystery of God's will, his, his eternal purpose. You could even look over in like chapter 3 of the very same book in verse 11 and find the same kind of language. The decree of God 
comes from infinite understanding, infinite knowledge, God's mind. And Paul writes that the Lord did foreknow and predestine or predestinate the elect in Christ. Romans chapter 8. We started there in verse 28, the beginning of the lesson. But let's pick up the next couple verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew... And actually back home, I preached the whole series, two lessons on the knowledge of God and the foreknowledge of God. It just would have gotten way too much. I, didn't, I only had six lessons, so I had to trim these. If you ever want to study those, holler. We, I'd be glad over a cup of coffee to study that with you. But it says, for whom he foreknew. God has perfect foreknowledge. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called. Whom he called, these also he justified. Whom he justified, these also he glorified. Paul writes that the Lord did foreknow. The Lord did predestinate the elect, the holy ones, the saints, Christians in Christ. And and again, this all speaks back to this idea that before time, and as we're going to look at here in just a second, before any factors could have played upon the Lord, God determined. God decreed. God purposed in his heart something to happen pertaining to future events. And his decree is often called his counsel. And I think that's important. It signifies something about God that he's, he's, he's consummately wise. And again, if we were to go back and have the time to talk about the knowledge of God, what does God know? Maybe we could ask this, what does God not know? There ain't nothing he don't know. He knows everything. And, and so when we talk about the decree of God, there's lots of words that we use in our, on our translations, the decree of God, the counsel of God, the purpose of God. God's will, it's called that, is to show that he was under no control. He, was, he acted completely according to his own pleasure when he decreed his plan. When, when a man's will is the rule of his conduct, right? When my will is the rule of my conduct, it usually is impulsive. It's often unreasonable because people's is people. But wisdom is always associated with will in the divine proceedings. And accordingly, God's decree is said to be the counsel of his own will. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. It's just a really important concept to try to understand this, that when God spoke, thus saith the Lord, the decree of God, it relates to all future events, all things without exception. And we would do well to to endeavor to understand the decree of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the counsel of God. In these precise biblical terms. We use them all the time. We interchange them. We, I hear people pray all the time that, you know, pray for his will to be done. and all. Right. But we talk around it all the time. But do we really, really stop and wrap our heads around what is the decree of God? Like I said just a second ago, the decree of God relates to all future things without exception. Whatever is done in time. Now think about this for a second. This gets a little bit weird to think about sometimes. Whatever is done in time was foreordained before time began. See, God's purpose was concerned with everything, whether great or small, whether good or evil. Although with reference to the latter, let me say this real quickly, as far as evil goes, somebody might ask, we've got to be careful to state that while God is the orderer and he is the controller of sin, 
He is not the author of it in the same way that he is the author of good. That is certainly a fact, and, and that's not at all what I'm suggesting. Sin could not proceed, though, from a holy God. We know that. But sin also, I mean, as, as sin cannot proceed from the positive and direct actions or creation of a holy God, neither can sin proceed without decretive permission and negative action of a holy God. In other words, nothing exists, nothing happens outside of the decree of God. That has to be true or else God is not sovereign. God is not supreme. God is not all-powerful. God is not all-knowing. And so when we think about sin existing and taking place only by the decretive permission and negative action of God, I know that kind of seems strange, but that has to be the case, or else God is not um, all-powerful. So God's decree is comprehensive. It is as comprehensive as his government is. When we stop and think about the government of God, God's rule, God's reign, God's government, it extends to what? All creatures, all events, everything. There's nothing that falls outside of God's government, God's sovereignty, God's reign. Therefore, everything falls underneath. I keep doing this like I think of an umbrella, right? Everything is underneath or within or affected by the decree of God. Everything. I would, do, I would challenge you to consider, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I can't think of one thing that exists and occurs or consists or, or, or whatever outside of God's government and decree. Now, I'm not saying he causes it, but it has to be allowed then. God's not causing somebody to go out there and shoot someone in the back. But does that not also occur within or under the scope of the decree of God? When you stop and think about God's decree... In, in, in the comprehensive nature of it, it is as concerned about our life as it is about our death. It was just a couple weeks ago I preached a, a funeral uh, of, of my wife's grandmother, uh, and we talked about that in, in, back in Psalm, how, how precious or highly valued is the death of, of a saint. The death of a saint is, is important to the Lord, but the life is too. Everything about us is important to the Lord and it falls in everything. Our, our state in time as well as our state in eternity. As God works all things, when we think about the workings of God, and again, there's, there's just not enough time in just six lessons to really develop this the way I would probably really like to. So I'm going to try to mush it in here. So hang on. As God works all things after the counsel of his own will... We learn from his works what his counsel was and is. We see evidence. And as we judge, it's the same way that we judge of, of an architect's plan by inspecting the building. We can't know what was in the mind of the architect, but we can see what was in the mind of the architect by looking at what he built, what he did. And so, and so when we look at the decree of God, we need to understand it relates to all future things without exception. And when we stop and we go back to the very beginning point of time, God pre-existed that, and his decree pre-existed that. So everything, everything within the realm and scope of what we call time and existence, the God's decree relates to that. And there's an important thing about the decree of God. I don't know where this really comes from, but this is something I've observed in the, what I've been taught over the years and what I've studied is that we kind of get this idea that God just kind of made his decree 
And then he's like, he just pushed in on autopilot and he sent back. God did not merely decree and depart. In other words, God did not decree to make man, place him upon the earth, and then leave him to his uncontrolled, his own uncontrolled guidance. Instead, he decreed the circumstances and the lot of individuals and in all the particulars which will compromise the history of the human race from its commencement to its close. And again, I'm not getting into saying that God, God did not pre-select those who would be saved. I'm not getting into any kind of Calvinistic doctrine. Somebody's bound to come up and say, no, I'm not. But listen, everything, everything that we can possibly comprehend is affected by the decree of God. Because that pre-existed time in all creation. He did not merely decree that general laws should be established for the government of the world, but he settled the application of those laws to, laws to all particular cases. God didn't just sit up there as an old guy says, listen, I'm going to make something, made it, exist, and now I'm going to go back to sleep and just let it work itself out. That's not the case at all. And so when we see this, we understand that our days are numbered just like the hairs of our head are. And I always have to clarify this. I have hair on my head. I am not bald. I just shave it off because I don't like to comb it. So the hairs on our head are numbered. So are our days. Everything about your life is known by God and is it, effect, it is affected by the decree of God. We may learn what is the extent of the divine decree from the disbursements of providence. I'm assuming you all have talked about providence of God here quite a bit. It's a very common teaching, I'm certain, that's been covered. And, and, and we can learn what is the extent of the divine decree of Yahweh from the disbursements of providence in which it is executed. It's a beautiful way that this works. If you went back to a passage like Romans chapter 8, verse 20, where we start at the very beginning, we can see that the care of providence, the providence of God, reaches to the most insignificant creatures and the most minute of events, even the death of a sparrow or the fall of a hare. My friends, this is the decree of God. This is really important. And I say it's important because it's a foundational concept. And, and all the lessons we're going to look at moving forward are, are going to have something based upon this understanding of the decree of God, what it is and how, how it works. And so the last little bit of time that we have here, I thought I'd share with you some of the properties of the divine decree. So this is what it is. This is the decree of God. And, and if, you, if you obviously have any questions about that, feel free to, to raise those. But we need to consider some of the properties of the divine decree. And I've been speaking around these, but I'll, let's clearly uh, lay these out. The decree of God is eternal. To suppose any decree of God to be made in time, and I hold my hands up like the bookends of time, beginning and end of time, to, to, to suppose a decree of God to be made in time is to suppose that some new occasion has occurred, some unforeseen event or combination of circumstances have arisen, which has induced the Most High to form another or a new resolution. This would argue that the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God is limited to, to and, and that he is growing wiser in the progress of time. Now think about that for a second. If you were to stop and think that after time began, 
God made his decree, but he now has to make new decrees. Something happens in there that God got smart. He wisened up and he had to make adjustments. Now, do you see the problem with that? Not only would that be a horrible blasphemy, but that would obviously say that God is not all-knowing. He is not sovereign. He is not supreme. What's hard for us as finite temporal beings is to understand how God is eternal and does not exist in time as we do. That's one of those subjects that you sit down with a, a cup of coffee and you just, you just stir it and you just try to think about it and in a few seconds you have a headache, right? God is eternal and does not exist in time as we do. He is unaffected by the constraints of time. And so is his decree. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, read those first 14 verses and really see God decreed before time began. Time doesn't affect the decree of God just as time doesn't affect God. No man who believes that the divine understanding is infinite, and I say we all agree that we, we believe God's understanding is infinite. There's nothing God doesn't know. Right? It comprehends the past, it comprehends the present, it comprehends the future. Nobody who believes that will ever assent to the erroneous doctrine of temporal decrees. As if once God started this machine of time and earth and existence, he's had to make adjustments because something wasn't right. His plan, he, had to, he has to tweak it. That's ridiculous. That would obviously mean that God is, is ignorant and he reacts to human actions. God is not ignorant of future events, and he will be, and that will be executed by human choices, volitions, decisions. God has foretold them in innumerable instances, and prophecy, which we do not have time to get into this, but study this on your own, prophecy is but the manifestation, the proof of his eternal foresight. Go back and study the 300 plus prophecies that just relate to the Messiah. And you can see that's proof of his, of his eternal knowledge, his eternal foresight, and his decree that existed before time coming to fruition. The Lord has full and perfect knowledge. His decree is eternal. It shall ever stand. It's unaffected by time. It's unaffected by us. It is eternal. I mean, and maybe if you're sitting there saying, how can we be sure? Well, Scripture affirms it. And again, for sake of time, I'm watching the clock. It always goes so much faster than I want it to. Well, I'll tell you, let's look at one. Ephesians chapter, chapter 1. We could, we could, I keep referring to Ephesians. This is such an important little paragraph that Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul here says in verse 4 that in Messiah, in Christ, in him... He chose us in love before the creation. He chose us, us being, if you want to back up, he's writing to those people living in Ephesus, according to verse 1, who have faith in Jesus, they're Christians. Before creation, the creation of the universe, the cosmos, he chose us in love to be holy and without defect in his presence. I can't explain that. Neither can you, but we can sit and try to understand the eternal nature of God and his decree. And that grace, that grace was given to us. We read that there in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 a minute ago. 
The properties of the divine decree is so important to understand it's eternal. And so what that means is nothing that has ever happened or will ever happen will ever change or shake or foil the decree of God. And you see how that's important to our foundational, our faith. If we believe in God and, and who he is and what thus saith the Lord, what he has said, we need to understand that it exists outside or it pre-existed time and nothing inside of time can affect it. It is eternal. It is also wise. Wisdom, <clears throat> wisdom is shown in the selection of the best possible ends and of the fittest means of accomplishing them. I could probably, it would take a few seconds to talk to some of you parents and you all tell me that you were doing something with one of your children. I'm just imagining David and Tanner for some reason. You're doing some sort of project and wisdom showed, that, I'm not going to say who was wise, and you all figure that one out, shows the selection of the best possible ends and the fittest means of accomplishing a task. That's wisdom. And yes, the wisdom is not necessarily connected to age. And I'm not suggesting anything there with, <laughs> with that, Phil family. But, but this characteristic, right, that this character belongs to the decree of God is evident from what we know of the decree of God. God knows, obviously, in his wisdom, to how to select the best possible ends of, and the fittest means of accomplishing his decree. <clears throat> Excuse me. His decree is disclosed to us. And, you know, it's amazing when we sit and we're reading the Bible, we're, we're, we're listening to a portion of the mind of God that he's revealed and we're, we're learning all this stuff. His decree is disclosed to you and me by its execution. And every proof of wisdom in the works of God is a proof of the wisdom of the plan in conformity to, to which they're performed. Psalm 104, here on the screen, Psalm 104, verse 24. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. Manifold means many-sided, visible. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. God is, is, is wise, and his decree is wise. If you stop and think about it, it's indeed a very small part of the works of God which falls under our observation as recorded in scripture and seen in our lives. Think about all the works of God. And if we were able to put that on some sort of a, a pie chart or a graph, what percentage of all the works of God, everything God has ever done, is actually revealed in the Bible and in your life? I don't know the answer to that. It's certainly not all. It's maybe a majority. I, 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 don't, I don't know. That'd be an interesting discussion for conversation uh, at lunch today, but... But if you stop and think about it, it's just a portion, perhaps it's a small amount, definitely in my life it's a very small amount. In the word of God it's a much, much greater percentage, whatever that number might actually be that we can never prove. But listen, we ought to proceed when we start thinking about the wisdom of God, what we see, how he acts and works out his plan, his decree, his will, we ought to proceed here as we do in other cases. And we ought to judge of the whole of the unknown, that which we can't know of God by what is known. That's, that's just how we do everything all the time. We need, to, we need to judge of what we can know of the unknown, what we can't know by what is known. So, so he, like, here's an example. If you go and, and, and you have a machine set in front of you, some, whatever machine it is, 
Um, I always like to take tours of factories. That's weird. I like factories. I think they're neat. Interesting how all the little parts work together. Uh, I like the free tours. They're fun. Right? If I go and I perceive the workings of admirable skill and precision in, in one part of the machine, if I examine that, it's natural that I'm going to assume that all the other parts are equally admirable as well. You can't have a really good part of the machine and then a really bad part. Then it wouldn't work. If it's working right... Well, we can see what the, the unknown is known by the known. And so in like manner, we should satisfy our minds as to God's works when doubts obtrude themselves, when we start to have doubts, and, and we ought to repel the objections which may be suggested by something that we cannot reconcile to our notions of what is good and wise based upon and, and evidenced by what we can know. We know that God's decree is wise because he is wise. And when we reach the bounds of the finite, when we reach the bounds uh, of that which we're limited to and by and gaze towards the mysterious realm of the infinite, those things that we can't possibly know and can't possibly see, we can exclaim with Paul, passages like Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his ways, his judgments, how unsearchable are his ways. I mean, we can't possibly know all of it, but we can observe what we can see, what is known, and see that his, his will, his decree is, is eternal, and it is wise. But we also need to see, and we can observe this, and we see that his decree is free. If you were to look over in, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, I love the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 in verses 13 and 14. Consider the words of Isaiah, speaking for the Lord's messenger here. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Who's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? This is, these are rhetorical questions. They're ridiculous questions. Obviously, no human has. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? Do you hear what he's asking? Who's taught God anything? Who has instructed or directed God? Who was God's sensei, right? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed God and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? We know the answer. But what this answer tells us, that nobody taught God, nothing taught God. God is, is supreme and sovereign and wise. God was alone, singular, when he made his decree. And his determination was not influenced by any external cause. Again, go back to the idea of the bookmarks of time, right? It's not as if God says, all right, I'm going to start this thing in time and creation and people, and then I'm going to watch it a little bit and say, okay, oh, that didn't work. Let me make a decree. Before any of that, he made his decree. His counsel, his will was established. He was free to decree or not to decree, he was free to decree one thing and not another. He was ultimately absolutely entirely free. Unaffected by anything. This liberty we must ascribe to him who is supreme. Yahweh is supreme. Yahweh is independent. Yahweh is sovereign in all his doings. And so is his decree. When thus saith the Lord's come up, we understand it's coming from 
a supreme sovereign deity, unaffected, wholly other, above everything. And so his decree is as free as his will. So when you stop thinking about who God is, he's eternal, his decree is eternal. He is wise, his decree is wise. He is free, he is sovereign, he is solitary, he is, you, know, you understand what I mean when I say that? He, he, is, he is totally other and holy and singular, and so is his decree. And then when we combine that with understanding that his decree is absolute and it's unconditional, Right, the execution of, there are some things about God's promises and his covenant that we understand there's some conditional nature stuff, but, but when we talk about the decree of God, go back again to Rome, Ephesians chapter 1 and read about what Paul, how he explains it. The execution of God's decree is not suspended upon any condition which may or may not be performed. It's just not. In every instance where God has decreed an end, He's also decreed every means to that end. Does that make sense? For, for example, the one who decreed the salvation of the elect of Christians also decreed to work faith in them. Look, look over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen how Paul writes it. For this reason, we also thank God without Without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. God decreed something and its fulfillment is absolute and he's going to work out the way by which his decree is fulfilled. The Lord himself establishes this truth. I should have told you to stay there in Isaiah for a second. My bad. Isaiah chapter 46, if you want to jump all the way back there real quick. Look at verses uh, 9 through 12, Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old? For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. Do you see that? There's nothing that's going to stop God's decree. Now, when we read and we study and we understand God's plan, God's scheme, God's counsel, God's will, all these terms we use when we study the Bible, we need to stop and remember it's absolute and it's unconditional. That cannot be if his counsel depended upon a condition which might not be performed. Do you understand that? If, all the, if there was some sort of a little, oh, I hope humanity doesn't figure this one out because they could, they could throw a wrench in the works and it just won't work out. Now, what kind of God would make that kind of decree? Not a kind of God that's, any, that's worth serving. The liberty we must ascribe to him who is supreme, right? It, it's, and and this, this power and, and, and his eternality and his wisdom, Right? Look what Paul says. Let's go back one more time to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to read these. I, I just feel like this is where we can be centered here. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12 this time. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's what Paul teaches us, and we need to remember that. Those aren't just pretty words. Those are truths. It's often been pointed out, here's a quote for you from Jonathan Edwards, the uh, Reformation preacher in the, was he early 1800s? I think that's about right. I, I can't remember his date. Uh, it's, it's a good quote. It's a little wordy because that's how people used to talk back in those days. But it's often been pointed out in the past that every objection made against the eternal decree of God applies with equal force against his eternal foreknowledge. Now listen to this quote and think about it. Whether God has decreed all things that ever come to pass or not, all that own the being of God own that he knows all things beforehand. Now, it is self-evident that if he knows all things beforehand, he either doth approve of them or doth not approve of them. That is, he either is willing they should be or he is not willing they should be. But to will that they should be is to decree them. And again, he's not, I'm not suggesting that God has made every possible thing. It's already set and there's no way you can, you know, a person can choose salvation. None of these Calvinistic doctrines. But what we understand is when we look at the decree of God, God made it before time, and there's nothing that happens within the boundaries of time that will cause it not to be fulfilled when time is no more. Yeah, we live inside of those bookends of time. We're in there somewhere. God operates outside of that. And his decree shall ever stand, and we live and die under the decree of God. So as we conclude, if you dare, attempt to assume and then contemplate the opposite, right? That anything exists or happens beyond the knowledge, the the, uh, supremacy, the sovereignty of God. To deny the divine decree would be to, to, to be, to base a world and all its concerns regulated by undesigned chance or blind fate, which is what our evolution, atheists, agnostic friends would suggest. What peace, what assurance then, what comfort would there be for our poor hearts and minds if everything is just undesigned chance and blind faith? What refuge would there be to fly in the hour of need or trial? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing. And so I'll leave you with two really quick verses. If this were the reality of things, there would be nothing better than the black darkness and abject horror of atheism. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. One more time, here it is. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And then one more from the book of Romans. And this was my invitation slide, so I left it up here. uh, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So this is the decree of God. And like I said, the rest of our lessons are going to orbit around or come back to this from time to time. So I wanted to do this one first. Uh, and we'll continue this line of thought here in just a few minutes. Thank you all for your kind attention. If you have any questions, please, by all means, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear them.